Hi, and welcome to my podcast series, The New Abnormal, which aims to make sense of our COVID-19 world today and tomorrow. I'm Sean P. Lodishenesi, researcher, author, and speaker from Brand Positive. As a researcher, I've spent 20 years conducting ethnographic interviews on global projects. Along the way, I've been lucky enough to have met some amazing people, from psychologists to activists to creatives, some of whom I'll be talking to in this series. I'm also the author of The Post-Truth Business, which focused on trust, empathy and privacy, while my second book, Influences and Revolutionaries, looked into innovation, behavioural change and the climate crisis. So, I hope you enjoy the interviews, and if so, please tell your friends, leave a rating and watch out for our other episodes. Now, without further delay, let's crack on with today's podcast. So today I'm really pleased to be joined by Gideon Wilkins. Uh, Gideon is the head of research at McCann Central, McCann Central uh, being a part of the McCann World Group. And uh, McCann World Group are, as they say, united across 100 plus countries by a single mission to help brands play a meaningful role in people's lives. Uh, prior to uh, being with McCann, um, Gideon was uh, over at uh, Cantal Millwood Brand for uh, seven years, um, where he was uh, the Global Brand Guidance Director. Um, he also spent a couple of years over in Shanghai, um, uh, uh, running the research things over there. And so what we're going to be talking about today is both, obviously, his uh, perspective on where we are now um, in a sort of C19 environment, but also in particular some really, really interesting uh, research that McCann have been doing into the current situation. Uh, Prior to that, I just mentioned that, I mean, naturally, for those of you who've been listening to uh, the rest of the superb podcasts and uh, in this series i think it's really interesting uh, so far just the array of perspectives we've had from the point of view of hope community and resilience along with other issues that are impacting culture and society and individuals and citizens and consumers etc and brands and businesses and organizations of all types um but i think it's going to be absolutely fascinating to uh, to hear gideon's take on this um certainly from his perspective and on the basis of the really interesting work that mccann have been doing so without further ado um gideon wilkins how are you hello sean i'm 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 well i'm good i'm i'm sat enjoying the sunshine almost kind of remotely i'm kind of through a window enjoying the sunshine hoping it sticks around for a few days but yeah really enjoying the kind of the the, the change circumstances and the, the kind of the different things it draws attention to so yeah doing well yep yep very good and just in terms of you know um, drawing attention to stuff i mean i mentioned earlier on i mean uh and we've obviously we've spoken about this previously i mean just the really really interesting work that mccann have been doing recently um as part of your sort of you know, latest ongoing research but you know particularly into where we are now in our sort of a uh, uh sort of covid world um it'd just be great if you could uh just literally just to jump straight into that um, before we then go into some other issues. Just um, yeah, just talk us through. So, you know, so what's the, the background to the research been? You know, how has it been structured and sort of who have you been talking with you? and What are the big themes coming out of it? 
So it's been a really interesting uh, kind of few months. And I think as a researcher, for a lot of us, our first reaction was, oh, yikes, does this mean that we're going to be, you know, are are the things that we have relevant? Uh, Are we still going to have a job in three months, often in a recession? Um, Sometimes research is seen as non-essential spend because it doesn't keep the lights on. Um, And I think what's been fascinating is kind of following people over the last eight, 12 weeks, um, following those journeys of initially fear and and just uncertainty um, and seeking information and being met with lots of misinformation. Um, it was really interesting, some of the, the very early research we did, some of the language that they were using in places like um, Latin America was when we said, you know, what do people need to do? How do this make you feel? Lots of people saying, I don't know. And often in research, that's almost the, when you're doing open text analysis, often the nothing, I don't know, none of these is almost discarded. But what was really interesting was that was a market um, where the volume of people having a, a knowledge gap was far more than in some of the other markets. And I, and I think that was, you know, that was one of the first piece of information that, that popped out when I was looking at it, it was consumers in, in, in a couple of the, the Latin American markets we were looking at, uh, places like Brazil, Chile, Argentina, mm-hmm a lot of people just didn't know what to do and didn't know what to anticipate. Whereas in other markets, uh, some of the European markets, there was already an expectation of collective responsibility. Uh, and so the, the kind of the, the tone of the language and the expectations of the role had shifted from, I'm seeking someone to inform me to, I feel like I have the information I need now. And now I expect everybody to to get on board and, and, and join in, which Perhaps mm-hmm. is part of the reason why we've seen such high compliance rates with, with things like the lockdown in certain markets. And, and although we, you know, we we see the uh, the newspaper stories about people not complying, the reality is in the UK, for example, I think compliance was well over eighty to eighty five percent because we developed a language very quickly of um, you and we are responsible, um, and there was an expectation that the community would 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 take hold and, and engage. Um, so it, and and I think what we what we saw early on was that um, that degree of fear in people's language around the world. It's shifted mm. a little bit now. We we recently did another wave um, where it's, it almost has moved to boredom. Um, we we did a global wave recently where we asked people how are they how are they feeling um, how is life at the moment um, and the number one emotion that came through was boredom and indifference and people were sat twiddling their thumbs waiting for something to happen um, mm. and the role for a brand really shifts then because. Yes, perhaps for the first week or so, um, brands scramble all over themselves to be the caregiver and put their arms around people and say, "Oh, we understand, we're on your side." Um, I, I don't, I don't think people need that now. And and even if they did, there are only a few brands that we'd really trust to put our arms around us anyway. Um, mm. And so actually, there's people are, are are sat waiting to be entertained, to be connected, and are all already kind of thinking ahead and planning ahead. They're dreaming of. Uh, of when a bank holiday weekend like this weekend can be a, a proper trip to the beach or can be uh, jumping on a plane or can be a, a garden party with friends. Um, I think the interesting thing about situations like this is um, <clears throat> that that sometimes deprivation is one of the best environments to do research in. Um, mm. And it's quite hard to create normally. So normally uh, we, we did a project a while back where we asked people to give up um, – a, a particular brand of, of coffee um, that I, well, it was it was Starbucks that the work was being done for. Um, it's a few mm. years ago, so I think I can mention them. Um, <laughs> the um, and, and what what we did for that project was for a week they um, were asked not to buy 
uh, any Starbucks coffee. And over the process, we then ask them what we ask them what do you miss. And asking people what do you miss is actually a more effective way of understanding what really matters than what do you like. If you say what do you like, it becomes a bit kind of cognitive and you know functional mm. and rational. And people start talking about I miss the feel of the cardboard under my fingers. We did another one where we looked at a, a nicotine replacement product, and that's really tough. Getting people to uh, not consume a nicotine uh, replacement product for a while is is super tough. And, and even mm. kind of taking it away for a few hours, people would talk about um, some of the really emotional aspects that they found of, of, of you know, they, they one person described the moment when they finally uh, had that that nicotine hit as like angels in the room. Um, and these are, you know, these are consumers' own words. And so what we're in the middle of right now is people are being deprived of uh, nights out and travel and, uh, you know, even the commute to work, discovering the emotion and the the, the real um, kind of meaning in sat on the train staring out the window. Um, mm. There were some really interesting insights that we've been able to draw out, even from just asking people, what do you miss about the commute to work? And obviously, in in, an, in a normal environment, there's no way I could ask 2,000 respondents not to go to work for a week, it, it, it wouldn't yeah. be possible. Um, so yeah, I think I think in, in following that journey and seeing um, some of the things that we are kind of having drawn to our attention that's coming from the subconscious to the more conscious mind uh, is both an opportunity for research, but also I think a major opportunity for, uh, for brands and, and for businesses. Mm. How interesting. And I, I really, I mean, it's absolutely fascinating. Certainly that issue um, you mentioned just now about deprivation. Um, so being able to do you know, research as we are now in the middle of, as it said, you know, the, um, the biggest sort of, you know, psychological experiment, you know, the world's ever known um, with, um, yeah, with coming out of nowhere as wars and pandemics appear to do, um, suddenly everyone being faced with this absolutely extraordinary situation being um, sort of experienced um, in similar, or, or albeit with um, you know specific differences um, around the world. What about the issue? Um, just to go back to that point you mentioned earlier on about collective responsibility. You're talking about you know the issue of. Um, people in certain Latin American countries answering questions, you know, on the basis of, you know, I just don't know what to do. I don't know what, I don't know how to explain how I feel versus that issue about collective responsibility um, in certain European countries. What about the, the, the notion um, that I've heard quite a lot spoken about recently, um, which is what we've seen is, is with regards to the trust issue, that's been a really hot topic over the last few years. Um, the argument go going that um, people are now trusting in governments far more and trusting in institutions far more, where until recently they weren't. I mean, do you buy that? It, it, are you seeing that the trust thing um, um, towards governments and institutions um, being uh, sort of you know risen up, um, or? Not or something else. It's uh, an interesting question. Um, a lot of our research tends to focus um, primarily on kind of consumers and relationship with brands. I think mm. when when we ask people the question, uh, what needs to happen or what should be done um, in order to, one of the questions that we've asked in, in some of our studies is, uh, what could you do, take, consume, or in what way could you behave to to combat um, the COVID-19 situation um, mm. and it, it was I was quite surprised at how few people um, talked about the government um, 
and 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 perhaps that's because they they've they've taken the advice for their country on board and then they expect everybody to to follow it and and so in um I, I can reference UK quite comfortably because I'm more aware of the the government advice mm. here. The the language that people used in uh, in the UK was very very close to the messaging that had come from uh, the kind of the press briefings in the UK. Um, so at the time that we did it, it was the, the stay in your home message was very yeah. very front and centre. People were playing that back. That phrase "stay in your home" was used time and time again, uh, and so it was it was certainly evident that the the kind of the marketing message or the pre- the um, mm. the press office message that came from the government was being adopted and and um, and, and respected and then played back uh, and people were internalizing and and accepting that rather rather than coming up with their own solution uh, and, mm. and I suppose in markets where perhaps looking at the the language that we saw in Brazil for example at that time that was quite early in the stage where um, the, the the political situation was not as um, clear cut and there was more ambiguity in that country at the time and mm. at that point people were saying i don't know and even though they could have kind of googled and said oh what are they doing in the uk right stay at home um people didn't people were waiting for almost an official green light and i think it's it's quite interesting to look at the ways that different countries have responded um places like new zealand having a very uh, mm. clear mandate from the prime minister at the very beginning and everyone's saying yeah. okay yeah we'll do that then uh, and uh, although although I've not done a lot of research specifically into that question, I think I think it's interesting, uh, and perhaps one that I could go back and have another dig into it to, to almost look at to what degree does each country consumer, having spoken to tens of thousands of consumers across um, the last uh, three or four months as part of this and other research that we that we're ongoing and doing, mm. it, it's interesting to see the countries it would be interesting to see the countries where people are naturally playing back the the top-down message which would then suggest that there is a a degree of i have no other answer i've no other source to know so i will Mm. go to the government source to answer it Mm. and then also the other point you mentioned about um the the sort of the brand role um during this and a lot of the sort of um the aspects of branding and sort of perceived positioning being about and, and messaging being around the caregiver um, as opposed at, at the beginning of the pandemic um, and, the, and the caregiver as a sort of a, obviously as, an, as, a, as a sort of a, as an icon um, links to things like at the moment, certainly in the UK, NHS, nurses being sort of deified uh, as they have been uh, naturally for years and years. Um, but now that issue about um talking about sort of people wanting to uh, look to brands to go back to being things like the entertainers, um, the, the providers of excitement, etc. Um, that issue of the caregiver, I mean, one of the points that's been mentioned for years now around the dreaded term sort of brand purpose has been brands essentially pretending you know, pretenders to the throne. You know, certain brands do it and do it really, really well. A lot of brands are just you know, come out with some sort of fatuous nonsense and think it stacks up and it doesn't. Um, but what about that issue of uh, people? Um, you know, in terms of their respect for brands linked to that caregiver sort of term, mm-hmm. are people um, sort of you know almost like linking the let's just say if you put caregiver next to a, a, a nurse as a job role and then caregiver as a title next to a brand i wonder how near to the to the reality of the nurse the uh, the caregiver 
positioning of brands manages to get or not. Mm. It, the um, there there are a couple of interesting things we've been looking at recently, um, and and within McCann, obviously we we use the language of a meaningful role a lot within the business. So understanding a brand's mm-hmm. role, um, making sure that they they go from right at the bottom level of saying our product delivery all the way up to the impact that we want to have on societies and communities is mm. driven by this core central role. Uh, and partly that's about efficiency uh, because everyone knows what you're contributing to. So everyone focuses and, and kind of rows in the same direction. And also it helps you from a brand point of view of then having a, a unifying identity. Um, we did some in, really interesting language analysis on the way that consumers talk about uh, two quite iconic uh, alcohol brands, uh, Bacardi and Grey Goose. Oh, yeah. And they people changed their grammar when they were talking about Bacardi compared to when they were talking about Grey Goose. So it wasn't just them talking about the occasion or the or the, the fact that one's a vodka and one's a rum. Or So if you if you did a traditional brand tracker uh, and looked at the differences between Grey Goose and, and Bacardi, you'd probably come back with Grey Goose is sophisticated, Bacardi is kind of fun, party animal. And so the, the yeah. roles that they play uh, in, in key moments, whether you're at home on your own trying to recreate a moment, and sometimes the benefit of having a Bacardi in the cupboard is not because you're taking it to the crazy beach party, but because you're having a drink on your own, kind of having just a little brief moment with the idea of a beach party. Um, but because those <laughs> yeah. two brands have spent so much time and effort establishing those roles and creating mm-hmm. a really clear um, character around themselves, when people talked about Grey Goose, they, they're, um, their modal verbs, I had to look it up, their modal verbs mm-hmm. changed from... So Bacardi, it was would, could, should, maybe, as long as, everybody, what if. And when they talked about um, Grey Goose, they were using words like will, must, um, is. They were complete certain verbs because that brand has established a real sense of control and certainty and sophistication. And people who drink that brand are people that have certainty and they have knowledge and they are leaders. And so the issue there is that those those brands have done such an amazing job over years and years and years of speaking in they, they speak such a consistent way that even their consumers now change the way they talk about them. Now, if that brand, um, I was thinking about like you know wh- which brand would be the most ridiculous to have suddenly turned into like the caregiver nurse over the last few months, and I kind of I came across Red Bull. Um, mm-hmm. And I thought about Red Bull because, and, and exactly, you, you kind of go, imagine if Red Bull had done the, the ad yeah, that yeah. Dove have just done. So Dove, yeah. Dove doing those lovely, we care about nurses, and they did some beautiful photography with like the kind of the, the, the imprint of the face mask. And Dove have every license and right to be talking about being a caregiver because they've been a caregiver since before other brands were being caregivers. Dove pretty much invented brand purpose and have, and have kind of been committed mm-hmm. to it for, for decades. Um, yeah, good point. Now, just because Red Bull isn't kind of being a caregiver in its role doesn't mean it lacks purpose. I think Red Bull is probably one of the most purposeful brands in the world as well. But its purpose is to give ideas and people wings. And Mm. from the basic 30-second TV ad through to the crazy stunts that they sponsor through to Mm. everything that they do, their, their mission is to break boundaries fuel the people that are the explorers, the disruptors, the rule breakers, the change makers, and say, mm. we celebrate you. And when you, Gideon, go into the bar and have a double vodka Red Bull, no, you're not putting on the squirrel suit and jumping off a mountain. 
But everyone knows that, you know, tonight is letting your hair down, let's go crazy night. Um, and, yeah. and, and, that, and that doesn't happen often, I, I, I hasten to add. <laughs> exactly. I hope but it does. Yeah. But, you know, once in a while, when, when, when appropriate. But the, yeah. but, the, um, but the role that that brand plays is, is very clearly in that moment of we're, we're going to go on a journey and not interest in other people. I'm interested in breaking new ground and new boundaries and all of their activity, all of their events, all of their partners focus on that. And so mm. when you get brands that then kind of try and flip that and go the other direction. So I think um, BrewDog had quite a lot of pushback. Um, yeah. And I, I perhaps come across them and they – they 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 were trying to kind of be one of the first people to do hand sanitizer, but yeah. Brewdog their role has been kind of an, an alcohol equivalent of a Red Bull. They've always been a bit crass and rule breaking and and done things differently, and so very quickly people went, oh, you're just trying to cash in because you've always been a bit of a rule breaker. So you doing hand sanitizer, I smell a rat. This is a bit fishy. You're acting out of character, and and the mm. fact that people would point fingers at them and say you're acting out of character, um, whereas uh, Lifeboy that hasn't even been in the UK sure. for yeah, yeah. years and years, but have, have spent you know a couple of decades teaching kids in the third world how to wash their hands. They've yeah, just yeah. come along into our local supermarkets with bins full of hand sanitizer. And no one's gone, oh, life boy, jumping on the bandwagon, because it's entirely appropriate that they play that role of the kind of the the, the protector. Even their name is, you know, safety in a storm. Yeah, yeah. They're, they're, all of their 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 energy and the character they've got like the uh, I think they've got like a almost like the, the the cross of the red cross style branding yeah, yeah. Um, so i think what what i would what i'd say is that there are definitely roles for brands to be the caregiver people want they want to be nurtured they want to be looked after they want an arm around them and the language of consumers especially in the the early weeks was very very skewed towards seeking brands and moments and people and circumstances that were reassuring and nurturing um, but that at most even during the peak of the of the uncertainty was perhaps around 40% of people's language 60% mm. wasn't 60% was in the other territories of where brands can play uh, a large part of it was in even in the early stages was in the kind of the role of a connector and bringing people together or entertaining people and for some people, mm. it was as the the information giver, or as the as the person that could yeah. maybe not explore now, but could help them imagine exploring and, and planning ahead and dreaming. And mm. I think the other risk for brands is if they spend loads of time being the right now caregiver, if they if they work really hard to kind of reposition their brand so that for the the peak fear of eight, twelve, sixteen weeks, however long the 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 the, the, the fear emotion is prevalent. If they, mm. if they work all of, all of that time to shift their brand into that space, the other key thing that I've seen in the data is there is an incredible amount of pent-up, ready-to-go, kind of desire to go and be even more of an explorer and an entertainer and a, and a discoverer than, than before. When we ask people to talk about what is the first thing that you'll do when this when this is all over, there are a few people that talk about I'm going to go to the supermarket. I'm going to go to my local pub. But there are also a lot of people that say, road trip, going on a plane. I'm going to buy that thing and, and I'm going to build that thing. I'm going to do that. It, it's almost like that deprivation environment has meant that mm. there are people will be looking for brands to play the opposite role to caregiver. They'll, they'll put down those brands that have been kind of trusted assistants and kind of tools to make them feel better in their home. And instead, they'll be saying, thank you very much, Horlicks. 
you've you've mm. you've given me a nice soothing evening uh, every every evening at home when I've needed to just calm down and have a a nice milky drink before bed. I don't need you yeah. anymore. Let's go off now and grab the Red Bull again. Um, and so the risk is that if if brands all kind of pile in and on to that caregiver territory, firstly they're going to be wallpaper, and you know if everyone else is doing it, then you, you, there's no cutthroat option at all. Secondly, yeah. it could be very out of character. And thirdly, you're taking yourself to a space that is very cluttered and won't be 40% of needs in whatever, 6, 12, 18 months, who knows um, mm. when we'll be able to book a flight again. But uh, I suppose there's there's a long-term play to avoid not being too um, kind of it, – it's not just being opportunistic. It's also losing sight of who you are and what your role is as a brand. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Very interesting. Um, and also, I mean, another aspect um, to the, to by the way, to the info that you sent me, which I thought was really, really interesting. Uh, the so the, the brand tracking stuff, uh, the brand tracking uh, docs, and one of the points in there um, looked around the issues of. Um, uh, let me think. In terms, of something you mentioned about so Instagram being the world's great catwalk, and mm. then looking at just a straightforward, as you were just alluding to, just looking to mentions. Um, but in terms of mentions from the point of view of their role in culture, perhaps as opposed to um, their role in society. And so the issue, I think one of the point, one of the brands you mentioned there was uh, Emirates versus American Airlines. Perhaps you can just talk a bit about that in terms of um, that. I thought it was really interesting. Yeah, I think, I mean, this, just a little bit of background to kind of what's brought me to this kind of space in terms of looking at understanding meaningful roles. Um, mm. So I, I, I joined the research industry um, 15 or so years ago um, and was kind of, I suppose, in the tail end of the heyday uh, and the height of the 30-minute brand tracker, 100 people a week, uh, the big global brands maybe had um, – 100, 200, three or 400 of these things running across the world. And every business question was then turned into another question in the survey. And any time a marketing person wanted something answered, we would turn around and ask pretty much the same question of 100 people or 1,000 people and then return with the answer that they, they'd given directly. Mm. And I think um, what one of the reasons why I, I wanted to move a little bit closer to the coalface uh, and to be within – an agency environment was, although my role remains as a full-time researcher, um, my department, my team are an independent research team, uh, and we we give good news and bad news even to our own uh, colleagues and 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 whichever client we're working with. Um, but but the move that needs to be made and is being made by a lot of uh, clients and and perhaps the research agencies and the rest of the world of research are kind of trying to catch up with that desire to move in that direction is to mm. say we don't have to ask 30 minutes worth of surveys to answer all of the business questions so as an example we we started pulling together a a multi-source set of uh, data to to look at kind of across the traditional five c's of, of marketing of understanding your, you know your customer and culture and category your company your your connections um those are the five that we tend to use at mccann in order to understand each of those rather than having to ask four or five survey questions we are looking at a combination of saying let's look at the data that's in in kind of the off-the-shelf ambient space like Instagram. Let's look at data that is technical classification data. Let's look at uh, reviews and, and where there's a gap, 
we can still ask the question. Or where it's a topic that people don't naturally talk about and can be observed, uh, there's still a role for, for surveys. Um, one of the um, one of the people that's kind of really driving some of this change is uh, Stan Thunanathan, who's the EVP mm -hmm. at, of Insights at Unilever. And he mm -hmm. uses the phrase, ask less, listen more. Um, but he doesn't say, ask nothing. And the, the point of looking at something like Instagram to measure culture is, is we can ask less um, and we can do more listening. And so we mm. we picked a category to start looking at uh, and understanding. Um, the the example I think I'd, I'd shared with you before was um, kind of higher end business class luxury uh, airline travel. Um, and we wanted to be able to look at, partly because uh, as you know, something interesting to, to, to work around, in the future, when when the when the skies reopen, it's probable that only the essential flights will be prioritised. Maybe the most important business trips, and it's likely, therefore, that the degree of engagement and maybe the budget available will be higher. So we thought, let's let's understand the meaningful role of different brands within mm -hmm. within business travel. Um, and so, Instagram, as an example, is an openly available if you can work out the the aggregation and I'm pulling the information through uh, reasonably well. Um, Instagram as a platform is the place where people go and kind of show off uh, and lots of social media is, but Instagram more than any other is, is the show off. It's the, it's the cultural badge. It's the look at my culture, look at the things I'm proud of, whether it's someone who's a uh, artisan woodcraft turn, you know, wood turner, all of his mm -hmm. stuff will be, appear on there. Uh, or if you're, um, an influencer you're on there so it, it's about culture and so mm. as part of what we did we uh, went and looked for the the frequency with which business class emirates is is hashtag mentioned or uh, shared as an image and compared it across the, the different channels as a measure of kind of badge pride or look at me look what i'm doing um yeah i wouldn't have done the same on twitter because I think Twitter mm -hmm. as a source is very, very different. Um, yeah. Twitter is the place you go and complain. So if you're at mentioning Emirates or or American Airlines on Twitter, it's probably to grumble that your flight's been delayed or because your meal was cold or something. So I think yeah. being able to move towards multiple source um, data in, in measuring and tracking brand movement over time, um, understanding the source and then applying it into the right pocket um, one of the things that I've seen, and, and I think there's a real challenge for the industry over the last five or six years, has been it started with this sudden excitement of look at all of this open source data. And with a million data points, we could answer a million questions. And mm -hmm. part of getting more out of uh, open source data is about answer, asking fewer questions of it and making sure that those are the most relevant and the most apt questions to, to put in. Uh, and mm. so in that example, because we wanted, our question was, which of all of the airlines has the greatest impact on culture or has the strongest cultural traction uh, mm -hmm. within business travel? Um, we used that particular source as a very strong measure of cultural traction. Um, and it has a, a very good relationship, you know, when, when we do kind of hold ourselves to account and do a bit of a, um, a driver's analysis versus actual passenger numbers and flights in business, um, mm -hmm. some of these measures that we're pulling in have actually got a good relationship. And you can look at search volumes, you can look at online reviews, you can look at um, PR and award um, figures and that kind of thing. And it, it allows you to build this very rich multi-source, multi-input data set of understanding mm. why is it that even though 
a brand like Emirates or Qatar might be ranked seventh or eighth in the world in terms of total travel volume when it comes mm-hmm. to a specific need or a specific role that needs to play. And I guess it's going back to that role conversation again, is mm-hmm. there is a there's a clear opportunity to say at this moment i need this kind of experience and Mm. smaller brands at that point can suddenly leapfrog and step past some of the leading brands because when you have a specific need in mind and when you're willing to do a little bit more consideration even though a brand might be the first to mind it's not necessarily going to be the one that plays a role to meet the specific need that you've got yeah yeah sure interesting very good. Blimey. Um, okay. And another thing you also mentioned there was the issues around, I mean, talking about, you know, the, the new abnormal um, um, and the new abnormal from a perspective of uh, moving into this emerging stroke, sort of a future reality. Um, as you put it there, I mean, um, so as you know, more of our lives become digital and more of our private lives become visible. Um, what about the issue? And I've spoken about this with quite a few people. What about the issue with regards to lives becoming more digital and private lives becoming more visible um the issue or the tension between surveillance capitalism uh, and i've written about this a lot in, you know, in both my books and last year there's obviously the fantastic uh, age of surveillance capitalism by shoshana zuboff that quite rightly was absolutely sort of uh, applauded and um, she's a fantastic writer um so you've got once had that that tension of surveillance capitalism tracking technology um and all the rest of it um which is also absorbed into that um, aura of you know facial recognition and all the rest of it um, um along with sort of hyper targeting the other side is the well um one of the uh ways we're going to get through or out of this horrendous pandemic is by um everyone or as many people as possible downloading tracking technology onto their phones so that just as we've seen with south korea um we're able to track um, fine-tune, test, um, isolate, etc. So what about that issue there, that tension between, uh, on one side, surveillance capitalism, which includes the tech lash, and the other side, which is essentially these tech brands becoming our protectors and friends? I think it's a really interesting question. There's, there's that old phrase in saying that uh, necessity is a mother of invention um yeah. i also came across one my mum used to say uh, if you're bored you're boring and <laughs> meant that <laughs> for years. i was terrified of to your mum. <laughs> <laughs> um but actually I've, I've started using a different phrase um if if someone says they're bored i'll say brilliant um boredom is the fuel of creativity and i say it so often that my true. kids now roll their eyes and, and and they also don't say i'm bored because it has the same effect of, um mm. and so I think there are there are a range of things happening at the moment that are all driving necessity and creativity, mm. uh, and so our inability to connect and our, and our natural biological desire to be connected with people and spend time with people um, is 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 leading to people wanting to use different ways of, of, of achieving that. Equally, mm. given given we're seeing um, in some of our data I mentioned earlier around how much people are now moving from fear into boredom. Mm. That's really exciting. Bored people make themselves not bored. Bored people find new ways of of doing things. So the idea that there are millions and millions of bored people right now means that we may see an incredible spark of creativity uh, over the next few months. And, uh, you know, I, I, who knows whether, whether that will come from boredom or from necessity or from, from some, 
something else, some entrepreneurial spirit. Um, mm. But I think rather than when you look, when you kind of track the the evolution of the way the technology has moved and the way that people have adopted it, like who would have thought? I know Facebook's a really obvious one to talk about, but if I if I look back to twenty years ago in very early stages of dial-up when you know we were barely able to send an MSN message and if you sent an image it would take 5, 10, 20 minutes to upload. Yeah. I think rather than this being the concern around the the top-down, if you look at all of the the things that have happened, you know, the amount that Facebook has in, been in the press for, for privacy, the number of PR stories that seem to be going around about Zoom, and, and every week mm-hmm. I seem to hear someone saying that they've had uh, some something appear on their on their Zoom call with some horrendous imagery or content, and yet yeah. I've got another Zoom call with a hundred people this evening, <laughs> and, mm. and yeah, yeah, and the the need to connect with other people, and and what we see in in the language analysis that that desire to be connected, um, I think that that's 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 biological, that's mm. that's a that's a deep biological need to connect and to be part of communities. I think the the writing. That um, Noah Yuval Harari in First mm-hmm. Sapiens, but then Homo Deus talks about us being, you know, as a species, have thrived through connection and community. Um, and so nothing's going to stop that. That is that is instinctive and deeply rooted in us. As uh, watching the pigeons nesting at the moment in 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 the kind of the trees across the way, um, mm. and and so although we may have a a conscious logical fear about certain technological advancements when we look at the the needs that people have when we look at the language that they use about their their life and the role that they want brands technology organizations to play in that in that continued connectivity the longer this goes on the more people i think are going to compromise and say well just because zoom might occasionally have some cyber terrorist hop in and share some horrendous content Mm. usually it won't and and so in the same way that we've got these people that are so driven to connect that they got a bit drunk on um a bank holiday a couple of weeks ago and did the conga apparently that oh yeah yeah in in the same way we're gonna i think people will just set aside some of those digital uh surveillance fears and instead say if this is the way that i can go and hug my gran again then then i'll then i'll do whatever's needed to get to that uh, for some mm. people, even to the point of breaking the law, for most people, because there's an expectation of the collective responsibility for the 80 or 90% of people that are, uh, are kind of more kind of respectful of the structure uh, and don't mm. sit in that disruptor kind of uh, archetypal role, um, mm. that they, if, if there's a new technology that, that delivers a solution that, that brings people together in that way, I, I, I doubt there'll be much pushback on it purely for um kind of tech privacy reasons mm, okay that's interesting um moving on to something uh, else that's again is sort of like slightly connected to one of the previous points i mean um and in terms of that issue around changing consumer behavior consumer attitudes at the moment i mean i know it's been in the press or certainly in the marketing press quite a lot recently that i mean Plenty of brands, I mean, but one brand owner, so typically Unilever. So they quoted um, recently, I think, in the drum saying that um, uh, they anticipate that several uh, 
consumer behavior changes observed during uh, C19 are likely to become permanent and they're adapting accordingly. They're really adapting um, uh, at the moment what they're up to in terms of their um, innovation. And then also that issue around um, disruption conversion, which you just mentioned. What about the the idea that is linked to, or perhaps is the opposite of the conversion bit, and that is the rejection angle? So to put a sort of contrary view in, I mean, um, you mentioned earlier on about the issues around um, too many brands going down the uh, caregiver route and perhaps getting slightly sort of bogged down there if it didn't really have a genuine link to the relevance of that brand. What about, um, and one of the brands that you mentioned in your report, um, along with Qatar and American Airlines, were Virgin Atlantic. And I think so far, in terms of the brands you've mentioned, you haven't really talked about um, brands that have had a really bad pandemic, uh, inverted commas. And I think certainly uh, the media view is that Virgin have been absolutely hammered by this in terms of... So, you know, Branson's attitude and in terms of what they've been up to and, you know, a brand that perhaps until fairly recently had a very, very uh, sky high profile and a huge sort of likability aura around it seemed to have basically um, tripped over fairly spectacularly. I mean, how does a brand like that um, pick itself up again? I think, uh, yeah, I mean, I, I was I was digging a bit more into um into the data that we had on Virgin, um, because um, I think I think so. The first issue there is the challenge of the celebrity chairperson. Uh, I mm-hmm. think Tesla is experiencing a similar situation. Yeah, yeah. Uh, sure. e- Elon Musk is almost bigger than Tesla, um, mm. and I think the, the the issue for when when we ask when we're doing our, our research into airlines, we ask people when you think of, of Virgin um, Virgin Atlantic, what are the first things that come to mind? For some people, they said uh, Richard Branson. So in people's head, he is the face of of Virgin Atlantic, and yeah. so the challenge there is it, 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 the issue of any celebrity spokesperson. And normally, a celebrity spokesperson, if they speak out of line uh, and they become a little bit kind of toxic and problematic, you can drop them, um, but you can't drop your chairperson. And 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 in this situation, you know, the, the chairman of, of Virgin Atlantic has probably got more media visibility than uh, the the airline itself, and so so part of the issue as well is is about kind of that uh, speaking in or out of character that we're speaking about earlier. So mm. Richard Branson as a brand is more of a kind of leader disruptor, a bit of a rule breaker. He's not super loved as a person. Uh, he's a little bit of a he's, he's certainly not a jamie oliver kind of character the the kind of lovable cheeky chappy there's i think a degree of skepticism and a degree of um perhaps a little bit of underlying dislike at the way he's so disruptive in in his kind of his role as archetype the the kind of language he uses Uh, and Mm. sometimes we admire that arrogance and then we're also willing perhaps to um to celebrate in someone having not a great time when they're when they're that disruptive so he as a brand sits more in that kind of rebel disruptor kind of territory virgin mm. atlantic when you separate them is more of an entertainer kind of brand when we get people to share images of what would a flight on you know if you could imagine a mm. virgin atlantic put on a party what would it be like um whereas gray goose or qatar get the we get uh, an image you know the leonardo DiCaprio, great gatsby holding up a, a champagne and toasting it's uh, the they they share black tie imagery when they're talking about mm. the Virgin Atlantic. 
it's in the um, you know lots of people color energy party uh, it's very mm. much that the high energy um, kind of entertainer brand and so the issue there is they weren't the the the, the disruptor voice of that brand was talking at a time when mm. perhaps we didn't want disruptors we wanted people to to comply and and and, and kind of work towards the greater good richard branson clearly wasn't and so so yeah you know absolutely there's, there's going to be a degree of toxicity across to the the virgin atlantic brand um and where we've taken a little bit of a, a measure of it for this for this project that we're running internally it'd be interesting to look over time whether that changes um i suppose outside of that I, the other the other thing that i think is perhaps there are degrees of risks and degrees of opportunities so one of the things that we've been doing a lot of research on is understanding um, category leaders versus challenges within a category. Um, yeah. And there was some really great work that was done by um, Europanel, that's a, a purchase panel um, company. And they've got a, um, a database called BG20. And they looked at the last few years, they've been tracking the change in consumer retail behavior, looking at tens of thousands of brands across hundreds of thousands of consumers and looking at that week weekly purchase behavior and some of their conclusions on a much bigger scale um, than someone like Byron Sharp has, has had as a data set some of those yeah. conclusions challenge some of the how brands grow conclusions around what and I'm sure I'd be pushed back on whether on the oversimplification but sometimes it feels like a slight kind of one-size-fits-all oversimplification of how brands grow and sometimes their model can be a little bit why big brands are big rather than how small brands can become big. Um, so this this database looked at how brands of different size grow. And there is a, there's, we're in the middle of a situation that creates risk for the bigger brands because bigger brands depend on people doing things on autopilot and doing mm -hmm. things habitually and doing things the same way they always have. Bigger brands are big because we get into these repeated patterns of behavior. We develop things and shortcuts and heuristics and all that stuff that we talk about in like yeah, that yeah. system one, kind of, I just do all this at the time. It was safe last time. I'll do it again. And, and a yeah. big brand is most likely to, to succeed and, and thrive when you're giving it as little thought as possible. And a trip to the supermarket, yeah. the big brands are most likely to succeed when you're doing the same thing as you've always done for five weeks. And then as soon as a supermarket changes the, the layout, of the supermarket and you go in and go oh hang on i was expecting fruit and i've got bread in that moment yeah. of disruption your shopping behavior changes and mm. the smaller brands that you don't know you didn't previously notice because you're having to like pause and look around you're literally kind of giving that fixture more attention in yeah. that moment of deeper attention you can pause and go oh well i normally grab hovis or warburton's bread because that's the thing i was doing it tastes fine Maybe in that moment you notice that Allison loaf has got uh, a little seeded batch. And you think, oh, I've had one of those for a while. Or the tiger loaf that you know you really like. It's just normally tucked around the yeah, corner yeah. And, you, and you take that. So the challenge at the moment is, so smaller brands grow by stealing and switching and, and diverting people from the bigger brands. And that's the only way they can because they haven't got many people that buy them. So yeah. normally they have to create disruption in order to get your attention. And, and either they do that you know, in, in a, CPG setting, they'll do that by buying a you know, maybe a gondola end or running a promotion, or they do some big outlandish PR event or stunt, um, or they wait for the consumer to be disrupted. So in that mm. moment when someone suddenly decides that they're going to go vegan or have a, kind of a bad reaction to wheat and think they're going to cut out wheat for a while, 
that's the moment when a smaller brand like a, an, an Oatly can go, hello, yeah, yeah, here I am, give me a go. And what we're in the middle of is one of the biggest moments of disruption that the world has ever seen from a point of view mm. of when I go shopping, it's unlike any other experience I've, I've had before. When I consume my products, I, you know, I'm, I'm doing it differently. So there's so much disruption happening that the the opportunities are, are there for smaller brands to say, you're probably going to be spending a bit more time thinking about uh, if and when you get around to buying a new car, and no one's buying a car at the moment, but when you do, yeah, yeah. you're probably going to give it a bit more thought because the degree of commitment and the kind of the cost implications, blah, 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 blah. And maybe you want slightly different things now because, because, because it's not so much yeah. about long journeys. It's just, so all of those things that disrupt, when you're in a mindset of disruption, you research a bit more, you consider a bit longer, you explore a bit further. And that's where small brands have the opportunity to be in that long tail process of going, you normally mm. would have picked the first one off the shelf that came to mind because you're on autopilot. Now that you're not, because C19 has forced you not to be, now as a smaller brand, you've got an opportunity to to consider us instead. Yeah, yeah. Very good. Um, and I must say, in terms of uh, the ultimate sort of disruptor, I mean, it's interesting, I think, until only very recently, um, the real sort of disruptor of our time perhaps were um, Extinction Rebellion, uh, the mighty XR in terms of uh, just highlighting issues around sort of climate crisis and the ecological uh, emergency. However, I know that um, in terms of time, I know that Gideon, you are jumping on a uh, uh, on another yet another Zoom call soon. Very good indeed. Uh, that is the uh, that is the the rule we are all living under now. The uh, in, our, in our sort of Zoom environment, but it's been absolutely brilliant. Thank you so much for the uh, for the conversation. Really, really interesting. And um, just so that um, the listeners are aware of how they can track you down, either on social media and or elsewhere go on then give us a uh, give us a clue of where they can uh, find you so uh, probably linkedin is the best option so there aren't very many gideon wilkinses in the in the world so if you search gideon wilkins on linkedin uh, i'm almost always open to a connection send me a message and say you, you heard me on here and um yeah look forward to hearing other thoughts and perspectives from people very good indeed. Well, look, Gideon, but I'll leave you also with an excellent anecdote. You mentioned Grey Goose quite a lot and the sort of certainties around that brand. Um, I remember a while ago, um, um, they were very kind to send me a fairly vast amount of Grey Goose and Bacardi and a couple of the other brands that they own. Um, and uh, my teenage daughter and her friends uh, nicked the whole lot. So I was left with the Bacardi. They took the Grey Goose. There is a lesson there somewhere for us, and uh, I'm sure we could uh, research exactly what was going on there. But anyway, look, that was absolutely fantastic. So Gideon Wilkins, Head of Research uh, at McCann Central, thank you very much. Thank you. Thanks for listening to the New Abnormal podcast. We hope you enjoyed it. Please leave a rating, tell your friends, and until next time, goodbye. Thank you.